The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor Sarah A. Speed in the Sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person, or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here's Reverend Speed. Our scripture passage for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Listen now for what God might have to say to you. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path. And the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So back in 1995, Yellowstone National Park realized that they were missing an important species the wolf. Wolves had been killed off back in 1930, so in 1995, over 60 years later, scientists reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone National Park. You may have heard this story before, but what happens next is mind-boggling to me. You see, without the wolves, deer had become overpopulated. The deer had run loose with no predator and had grazed the lush fields and land in Yellowstone to almost nothing. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, the deer began to act differently. The deer began avoiding places like valleys and plains where they might be easy prey. And as a result, those areas started to regrow. Plants and shrubs returned, saplings took root, and in some places, the height of trees more than quintupled. Bare valleys became forests because all of the sudden they weren't being picked clean. And you know what happened next? When the trees started to come back, the birds returned. And then the beavers came back because beavers like trees. And the beavers started to build dams, which created habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish, which improved the quality of the rivers and streams. And the wolves killed off some of the coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to increase which increased the population of the hawks and the eagles. 
And then the bear population started to rise because now there were plants with berries for the babies to enjoy. However, the most shocking thing of all, according to the National Park Service, is that adding wolves to Yellowstone changed the course of the rivers. Yeah, you heard me right. Wolves changed the rivers. You see, all of those plants and trees that had not been able to grow before were now growing. And that growth stabilized the soil at the banks of the river. So suddenly the rivers weren't collapsing on themselves due to dry and barren soil. Instead, they were becoming strong and fixed in their course because the banks were supported by deep sister roots. So the wolves not only changed the ecosystem, they changed the rivers. They changed the park's geography for the better. It's a wild story to me, and I wonder, I just can't help but wonder, if the scientists who first proposed adding six wolves to the park had any idea the impact they would have. It was like a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. I mean, I'm sure that they were wise enough to know that the presence of the wolves would have an impact, but did they know the wolves would help regrow the forest? Did they know the rivers would solidify in their banks? Did they know? It seems to me that the scientists at Yellowstone were willing to just try something, try anything to help make a difference. And friends, that is holy. I see that same attitude in our text today a willingness to do what one can, and I think it's the attitude we need when it comes to the climate crisis. So let's dig into the text. The parable of the sower is one of the many stories that Jesus tells the crowds in an effort to teach them about the kingdom of God. The story begins with a farmer who goes out to his plot of land to sow seeds. As he scatters the seeds about, some fall on a walking path and are eaten by birds. Some fall on rocky ground and are scorched by the sun. Others fall in brambles and are drowned by the thorns. Only a fourth of the seeds fall on good soil and are able to grow. Now, what most sermons on this text focus on is the soil. Are we fertile or not? Other sermons often focus on the seeds because there is life and death in these seeds. But I want to focus on something different. Today, I want to focus on the farmer. We don't hear a lot about the farmer from Jesus. We don't know the farmer's name. We don't know if the farmer is planting barley or lemon. We don't know if it's the first time they're throwing seeds or if they've been doing it their whole life. What we do know is that the farmer has one job and it doesn't seem like he's very good at it. I mean, what farmer would just throw seeds about all willy-nilly on the road and on a bramble patch and say, well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. 
That's like me saying I've been thinking about trying out for the Mets next season, <laughs> you know? It's a bit foolish. I don't think our farmer was a very good farmer. But what I love about the sower in Jesus' story is that he tries. Maybe, maybe he doesn't know where the fertile ground is. I can relate to that. Or maybe he doesn't know what planting practices will be the most successful. I can relate to that. But even still, he sows the seeds he has to sow. He does the good that is his to do. And even with the failures, I think there's something holy in that. So as I was studying the text this past week, I had to ask myself, why would Jesus tell this story about a clearly terrible farmer to a crowd of likely farmers? What did Jesus want them to hear? What does Jesus want us to hear? And I don't know for sure, but I wonder if Jesus knew that we would need a story with some rocky ground. I wonder if Jesus knew that we would need a story that wasn't just success on the first try. It wasn't nets breaking full of fish or healing at the first touch or feeding 5,000. I wonder if Jesus knew that we would need a story about an ordinary person who does the good that is theirs to do. And with God's help, it makes a difference. Because that's what I see in our text for today. Today's scripture passage ends by Jesus saying, The seeds brought forth grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. If you have ears, hear. The message translation of these verses rephrases it to, The harvest was beyond their wildest dreams. Are you listening? Friends, only a fourth of the seeds made it to fertile ground, but with God's help, that was more than enough. So maybe the lesson we have to learn from the text today is that we don't have to know how to respond to the climate crisis perfectly, but we do have to plant our seeds We have to try. We have to do the good that is ours to do and trust that God is and can work with that. I grew up in a Presbyterian church in Jacksonville, Florida, elementary school in Florida, middle school in Kansas. It was a rough transition. Each summer, the youth would load up vans full of hammers and tool belts and would drive up to the Appalachian Mountains for a week of service work with Appalachian Service Project. Every year as a kid, I can remember those teenagers would come back and would tell stories about their week, and they made such an impact on me. I still remember them. They made such an impact on me that when I became a youth pastor, I took my kids to Appalachian Service Project. One of the stories I remember most as a kid was a story about Miss Betty's house in Scott County, Tennessee. 
Miss Betty's home was a lime green, I'm talking lime green trailer that she lived in with her mother who was suffering from dementia. The trailer was carved into a rural mountainside in the holler and the mountain was eroding into the trailer, threatening to push the trailer off the mountain. One good rainstorm and it could be gone. So the youth from my church got up to Cook County, Tennessee. They divided up into work teams and each were assigned a family and a home. And so for that week, four teenagers and two adults, my dad being one of them, worked tirelessly to dig the mountain out and build a retaining wall behind Miss Betty's home. They said it was the hardest work they'd ever done. And by Thursday, they could tell that they weren't going to finish. Blisters had formed on their hands, their necks were sunburnt, their backs were sore, their muscles were just giving out. So on Thursday, the group stopped to eat lunch, and each day, Miss Betty had invited that worn out, sweaty group to bring their dirty bodies up onto her porch to eat and rest for a moment. They ate PB&Js and ham and cheese sandwiches and took naps in the sun. On Monday, my dad said that the lunch break was filled with laughter, but by Thursday, they mostly ate in silence. Silence both from exhaustion and from the painful realization that they were not going to finish the job. They had been resting on the porch for no more than 10 minutes when my dad said he heard a hammer on the other side of the trailer. Somehow, Thompson Farnell, a ninth grader who lived just up the street from me, had found the strength to get back up, walk back to that wall, and begin hammering another piece of rebar into that mountain. Everyone said that Thompson had spent much of the trip complaining about how his mom made him go to Scott County, Tennessee for the summer. But on Thursday, Thompson didn't stop for lunch. He got up and went back to the wall. My dad found him and said, Thompson, what are you doing? You've got to rest. And Thompson said, Rev, what is she going to do? Nobody even knows she's here. We have to finish this wall. Friends, we cannot solve every problem. Sometimes we run out of time. Sometimes we hit rocky soil. Sometimes the problems are just too big. However, our faith still calls us to do the good that we can do. Thompson knew they weren't going to finish that retaining wall, but as long as he had the stamina to stand, he was going to keep digging. And I think we, could, we need that attitude when it comes to the climate crisis. We know we cannot solve the crisis on our own. We wouldn't even know where to begin. But as long as we can do our part, as long as we can do the things that so many of you emailed me about this last week, recycle and plant gardens, minimize single-use plastics, wash our clothes in cold water, collect trash off the sidewalk, support organizations protecting the forests, cleaning up the riverbeds in Brooklyn like some of you did yesterday, as long as we can do that, then we've got work to do. 
We have seeds we can sow. Now, friends, I know this is low-hanging fruit. There is nothing original about me standing up here and saying to you all, do the good that you can do. That's part of our Christian DNA. You all know that, and you do that. And yet, and yet, there is a narrative when it comes to the climate crisis specifically that is saying something different. Earlier this week, I asked Google, can individuals make a difference when it comes to the climate crisis? <laughs> a cheery Google question. The first page that popped up was climatescience.org. The tagline said, a single person's action will not make a big difference. The next article said, individual consumer choices are the smallest contributor to climate change. A third source, PBS, quoted a study that said, Americans are less concerned about how their personal choices affect the climate than we were three years ago. That was published this year. The situation is growing worse, and yet we are somehow less concerned. According to the Center for Public Affairs research poll, adults in America are still worried about the climate, but we are not as convinced that our actions can make an impact. Instead, we think the problem lies with government and big industry, and not us. Friends, I understand that viewpoint, and it's tempting for me to believe it from time to time, but I don't buy it, and I think it's dangerous. Because a few scientists released six wolves into Yellowstone and it changed the entire ecosystem. And one teenager helped save Miss Betty's house in Cook County, Tennessee. And there was a farmer in Jesus' time who did a terrible job planting seeds and the harvest was still beyond their wildest dreams. So if they can make a difference, then just imagine what the 2,200 plus members of this church could do with God's help. Family of faith, I believe in my bones that God is cultivating fertile ground. So we have to sow our seeds. We have to join God in this holy work. So keep digging the wall, release the wolves, plant your seeds, do the good that is yours to do. And friends, I think we can and will find holy ground. Are you listening? Amen. Friends, be like the sower this week. Do the good that is yours to do because the world needs it and I believe you can make a difference. So as you leave this place, may you love as if love is not a scarcity. May you hope like there is a better tomorrow. May you live like we belong to one another because we do. And may you trust that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself, go now in peace. Go sow some seeds. Amen.
We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.